This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. With me to the eighth chapter of Romans. Romans chapter eight. And as you do that, uh, I'm going to read just one verse from John's epistle, first epistle of John, chapter 2, verse 1. John writes, My little children, these things I write to you, that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Just a few Sunday mornings ago, we took as our theme, Jesus, our faithful high priest. And this evening, I want to follow on in that theme with Jesus, our advocate in heaven. Because this is another dimension of the ongoing ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ right now in heaven. And just like his great high priestly ministry, it is for our benefit. It is done on our behalf. And the reason is fairly obvious. We have, in Satan, we have an accuser, we have an adversary. The word Satan means adversary. The word accuser, diablos, is where we get devil from. So the evil one is our arch enemy. He takes every opportunity to oppose, uh, to come against, to condemn, and even though we have an accuser and an adversary, but thank God we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, advocacy is a legal term. It's found in a court of law. An advocate is one who fights the cause of another in the courts of justice. Now, our British courts, our judiciary, is an adversarial system. That means to say that we have a prosecutor and we have a defendant and we have a defender of the defendant. And so one prosecutes the defendant and the advocate or the defender defends the defendant. And the case comes before perhaps a judge and a jury Not always, but often it does. And after all of the things are talked about and discussed and debated between the prosecutor and the defender, with the defendant in between, then it goes to the jury and the judge to deliberate and to come to some decision regarding what would be a fit and proper outcome. Now, courts are quite an intimidating place to be. Uh, In almost 40 years of being a pastor, I can tell you I have been to courts uh, many times. Sometimes with people, it's a petty session. Uh, Sometimes it's a magistrate's court, but there's been a few occasions when it's been the high court. And it is quite intimidating because in our judiciary, uh, we know that the barristers with their silks, with their gowns, with their wigs, with the imposing building, with the dock for the defendant, with another area for the jury, 
and for, for the public gallery and going into that arena with the judge staring you in the face, sitting higher than everybody else, you can imagine it's quite intimidating and it's meant to be because you're the defendant. You're the accused. You're the one that's there and the prosecutor's giving you a hard time and the judge is listening and the jury is listening. And so when it comes time for the, for the, uh, for the result, could we say, when it comes time for the verdict, uh, then that again is a very tense moment for any defendant standing there at the mercy of the court. Now, heaven's system is a little bit different. There is a prosecutor, Satan, our adversary, the accuser. Then there's us, the defendant. But then there is our advocate, the defender, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I are not even there. We're not even there. We're not even aware most times that Christ is our advocate, that there is an accuser, that there's an adversary, that there's one who is condemning us. At other times, we are only too aware. We're very aware that we are the ones that are in the dark, that our accuser, our adversary, is condemning us. He's pointing the finger. And he's saying, this one did this, and this one did that, and this one said this, and this one said that. And he's charging us with crimes against God and against maybe our fellow man. And in that sense, in that moment, we, we sense our need of an advocate for somebody to defend us, for somebody to fight our cause, for somebody to stand up, even if our guilt is charged, but to still defend us. And this is where Jesus comes in. You see, as our faithful high priest, he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities, with our weaknesses, we said this morning. He fully identified with our humanity. He took upon himself the physical body, and yet he was without sin. But he understands our frailty and our weaknesses. He understands the depths of our sin. But as our faithful high priest, he prays for us. He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. And that strengthens us and that helps us. But we have an advocate. As our high priest, he helps us before we sin. But as our advocate, he helps us when we sin. In Zechariah chapter 3, which you don't need to turn to, there's a, a lovely image here, the first few verses. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to the one who stood before him, saying, Take away those filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So that gives us a kind of an image 
of our advocate who stands at our side. Psalm 109, 31. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him, to save him from those who condemn him. And in 1 John 2 and 2, it says about Jesus that he is the propitiation or he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but for also all the whole world. So Jesus is our sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. But even though Jesus is the propitiation for the whole world's sin, including ours, but yet he's advocate only for the believer. He's only the believer's advocate. He's not the sinner's advocate. You say, well, why is that? Because the sinner doesn't need an advocate, he needs a mediator. And Jesus is the mediator. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Before I was saved, I needed a mediator. I needed someone who could come between me, a sinner, and between a holy God. I couldn't approach a holy God without a mediator. I had absolutely no standing before a holy God. I was undone. I was unclean. I was lost forever. I was bound for hell, actually. So I had no standing before a holy God. So I needed somebody who understood the depth of my sin, but understood the holiness of God. And there was only one who could fulfill that role, and that was the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one mediator between sinful man and a holy God. Only Jesus could do this. But now that I'm saved, now that I'm reconciled to God, however, although my propensity, and yours as a believer, I'm sure, is not to sin, but to live righteous before God, yet in spite of that, in spite of my desire, in spite of all of my best efforts, I still feel, I still falter, and I still sin. That's why I need an advocate. Because in those moments when I do sin, you can be sure the accuser, the adversary will come and he will condemn me. It's funny, you know, before I get saved, when I sin, the devil never condemned me. Sometimes my conscience did, but the devil never did. In fact, he didn't care if I became the greatest sinner in the whole of Northern Ireland. All the better for him. That would be a great advert for him. There's a difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of the devil. When the devil condemns us, it drives us from God. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, it draws us to God. And there's a big difference. So what about our sins now that we're saved? Are they any less sin? The reason why I say that is because there's teaching in the body of Christ today that purports to tell us that as believers, that either we don't sin, or our sins are meaningless, or because our sins are already forgiven even into the future, before we ever sin, they're already forgiven. Therefore, we do not need to confess sin. We don't need to be bothered about it at all. 
That is a very prevalent teaching that has come into the body of Christ. And it's wrong. It's false. It's not right. In 1 John, uh, in 1 John, John writes about this. In verse 5, he says, chapter 1, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say, now he's writing to believers, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, talking to believers, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, which is the first scripture that we read. Confessing here, by the way, is more than just admitting. We talked today about fessing up admitting, holding up our hands, saying, okay, I got that wrong. I did that the wrong way. I did that. I said the wrong thing. But this is more. This is owning our sin. This is actually literally owning it, acknowledging it, actually seeing it as God sees it, calling it out as God would call it out. But once we do that, thank God, it can be forgiven. The slate can be wiped clean. And we can go on our way, justified before a holy God. But even, even after we've confessed our sins and our feelings, our adversary, our accuser, will still try and condemn us. Because that's what he's like, and that's what he does. And that's why I've asked you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and following. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. That's his high priestly ministry. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Paul mentioned seven things there. And by the way, the only one that he hadn't experienced yet was the sword. And that would come a little bit later. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Paul is going to great pains here in order to encourage us and to show us the love of God for us. 
even though we will blunder and we will sin and we'll make mistakes and we'll get it wrong, and even though the, the accuser, the condemner, the adversary will come again and again and point the condemning finger, yet God will love us. And nothing will separate us from the love of God. Who shall bring, any, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The devil. That's who brings a charge against God's elect. In Revelation 12 and 12, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He accuses night and day before the throne, it says. And it says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. But he's the accuser of the brethren. Verse 34, who is he who condemns? It's the devil, that's who. Who, is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Satan will desperately try to do that. And Paul mentions some of the things that he's used. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, all of these things to try to make us believe that God does not love us. You know, there's a great temptation, isn't there? That when you're in a struggle and things is going against you, there's a temptation to think, does God really love me? Because if God really loved me, would I be facing this? Would I be going through this? Would I be hurting so much? That's the temptation. And the devil wants you to feel that to make you think that God no longer loves you because of what you're going through. So that's why Paul lists all of those things. And he says, in spite of all of that that you go through, he says, God still loves us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul never lets go of that one thought. God loves us. Verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life shall separate us from the love of God. Death. The Bible says that Christ holds the keys of death and hell. When a believer dies, all it does is usher us into the presence of God. That's all it does. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Grave, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory. And so death cannot separate us from the love of God. What about life? Can life separate us from the love of God? No, because Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And him, John says, was life, and the life was the light of man. And so nothing in this life that we live, nothing can separate us from the love of God. No matter what happens to us in this life, we have a greater life in Christ. The life of Christ is in us to overcome that. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you always, even unto the end. <coughs> that was David Livingstone's favorite text. 
F.W. Borum said that David Livingstone, whenever he was going through a very difficult period, whenever he's gone through crises, and he went through many of them, he would always write that text in his diary. He would always put, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you even unto the end. And beside it, he wrote, it is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor. So there's an end to it. <laughs> that was how he felt about it. The Lord has given his word. What shall separate us from the love of God? Angels, principalities, powers. Can angels separate us from the love of God? Does not the Bible say in Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who are the heirs of salvation? Angels are our allies. Even though we cannot see them, but they're there and they're real and they help in ways perhaps we don't even realize. If God was to open up our eyes into the spirit world, we would see angels. He doesn't generally speak and doesn't, but if he did, we would. And they're there to minister for us. They're sent here to minister for us. So they'll not separate us from the love of God. Can principalities our powers separate us from the love of God? What's the principalities and powers he's talking about? The ones he talks about in Ephesians 6. Those principalities and powers, those spiritual wickedness in high places, those demonic forces, can they separate us from the love of God? No. No, of course they can't separate us from the love of God. The Bible says on the cross, Jesus made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He's already defeated them. And in Ephesians 6, when it talks about those principalities and powers and the devil with his fiery darts, what does it tell us? That God has given us armor, spiritual armor to wear, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, girdle of truth, so forth and so on. All of that, that we can defeat those principalities and powers even in this life. So they cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nor things present, nor things to come. Can things present separate us from the love of God? No. No, of course not. For he is the one who is the great I am. Present tense. The one who dwells eternally in the present. That's why nothing present can separate us from the love of God. What about things to come? Can that separate us from the love of God? In Luke 21, towards the end of the chapter, verse 26, Jesus talks about a time coming. He said that men's hearts will fail them for fear of the things that are coming on the earth. It's a big statement, isn't it? That men's hearts will fail them, that people will literally have heart attacks at the thought of what's going to happen next. If we think things is bad now, let me tell you, there's going to be a lot worse down the pipe. But can that separate us from the love of God? No. 
It can't separate us from the love of God. Christ is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and is to come, the Almighty. (laughs) That covers everything, doesn't it? That covers everything from things present to things to come. Everything is covered. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so he's the one who, as our faithful high priest, ever lives to make intercession for us and as our great advocate, the one who fights our cause. By the way, three times in John, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our advocate. Translate it comforter. So we have an advocate on earth, an advocate in heaven. How could we be separated from the love of God? Nor height, nor depth. He's with us on the mountaintop, and he's with us in the valleys. You can sense when he's with you on the mountaintop, but he sense when he's with you in the valley because he still is. When you're on the mountaintop, you feel for sure God loves me, but do you feel that when you're in the valley? But he's with us in the valley. His love never fails. Psalm 139. Verse 7 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. (laughs) There's nowhere we can go to escape the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, finally he says, nor any other created thing. Just in case he missed something. He adds this, or any other created thing. Satan was a created thing. Demons and angels are created things. Created. Jesus was begotten, not created. Jesus was begotten, not created. He was born for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again for us. He's coming back for us. And right now, he's our advocate at the right hand of the Father. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So whether in the realms of this life or the next life, whether earth or heaven, whether it's earthly foes or demonic forces, whether it's time or eternity, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So when you put your head on the pillow tonight to go asleep, remember that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father as your advocate and as your great faithful high priest. And there's nothing's going to separate you from his love. Glory to God.
And if that doesn't help you to sleep tonight, I don't know what will. Somebody says, don't count sheep. Look at the shepherd. Amen? So aren't you glad tonight that we know the Savior? Aren't you glad tonight that he's working continually 24-7 on your behalf? No wonder we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. No wonder we cannot ultimately be defeated because the one who loves us the most holds us in his hands. Our lives are hid with Christ in God. That's pretty good, isn't it? Feel safe? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bless you for who you are tonight. You are the eternal one. You're the one who's seated at the right hand of your Father. Will you ever live to intercede for us? And we thank you for your ministry right now for each and every one of us. We bless you that this week, as we grow through this week, that we will remember and know that you are in heaven that you're looking over our lives, that you're watching, that you're interceding, that you're praying for us, that you're advocate or intercessor, and we thank you for your ministry. We bless you, Lord. So, Lord, who have we to fear because we're leaning on the everlasting arms? We give you thanks for this, for the encouragement, Lord, that you give us in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless the Lord. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.